Well, turn your Bibles tonight, if you would, with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And just as I did this morning, I want to explain to you why we're pressing on uh, tonight. Um, really, it works in God's providence that we, with chapter 17 of 2 Kings, we, uh, it's a good break. In other words, we'll, we won't have uh, evening service for the next two Sundays and after that, in 2 Kings chapter 18, it begins with uh, the account of King Hezekiah. But really, tonight we close, uh, in a sense, our study of the northern ten tribes uh, known as Israel. Of course, Israel, Judah's Israel, too. So it gets, I know it gets a little confusing, but we've been following now that the, the nation after Solomon split into two different nations, and that the ten tribes in the north were commonly referred to as Israel, and Judah in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So we come tonight to the end of the study, really, of the nation of Israel in the north. And last Sunday evening, we studied together the, the fall of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel in the north. And now we learn about the aftermath. And again, the Assyrians at this time are uh, the dominant religion. religion. They're the dominant uh, force, the dominant power. Uh, this is amazing. Again, you can, you can Google Assyria um, and you can, you can Google Tiglath Pileser III, who's mentioned here in the biblical text. You can Google it and you'll find uh, all kinds of information at the British Museum, um, down at the Yale Museum uh, in, in uh, yeah, is it New Jersey or Connecticut? I'm blanking, but New Jersey. Connecticut, Yale, or is it Yale? Princeton. Princeton's in New Jersey, Yale's in Connecticut. Anyways, there's a museum with some Assyrian artifacts, and I want to go there sometime. But in other words, what we're reading about as far as the political moves of the Assyrian kings, Egypt, and the forces in Judea, in Syria, and so forth, are absolutely without question attested to in contemporary artifacts that we have. And in fact, accounts by the kings of Assyria, even naming kings like the last king of Israel, Hosea or Hosea. So he's actually mentioned by one of the kings of Assyria in one of those artifacts. So it's just, it's just amazing. And, and I wish if I had uh, more time and ability, I hope someday to do a better job, I can put some of these uh, materials on PowerPoint and maybe help you know, show you. I just think that's fascinating. And I hope it builds your faith, and especially I want to impress upon the young people that, um, I mean, all of this is true of all of us here, but, but do what you may with the Bible. You cannot deny that the history of the Old Testament is absolutely verifiable in, in history. And so uh, don't allow anybody to tell you that it's just myth. They're, they're, frankly, they're ignorant, and all you have to do is you can Google and you can look it up for yourself and find uh, these various kings... Uh, well uh, described in archaeology. So it's, it's really amazing. And we are blessed to have those kinds of materials in this day that you can just look it up and go online and find some of this stuff. So anyways, we, have, we come now after the destruction of Israel in the north and the capital of Syria. I want to come tonight to the second half of chapter 17, and that is verses 24 through 41. So here's what happens in chapter 17, 24, after the king of Assyria, after he has conquered Israel in the north, after he has uh, besieged Samaria for three years, 
the people starve to death. It's, it's a sad scene. And finally, he hauls off um, thousands of Israelites into captivity. And not only does he haul off the Israelites into captivity, but one of his policies for the Assyrian policy for making sure that there was no rebellion that would well up again, they had a pretty smart policy of, well, we'll bring the people that live there out, we'll haul them off somewhere else, and we'll bring in other foreign peoples to inhabit the land so there can be no uprising again. So we learn of this in verses 24 and following. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and Sephar Vaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. Now it happened at the beginning of their settlement there that they did not fear Yahweh. Therefore Yahweh sent lions among them which were killing them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have taken away into exile and settled in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them. Behold, they are putting them to death because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you took away into exile and let him go and live there and let him instruct them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had taken away into exile from Samaria came and settled at Bethel and instructed them how they should fear Yahweh. But each nation was still making gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, each nation in their cities in which they lived. And the men of Babylon made Succoth-Banath, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nebhaz and Tartak, and the Sevar, Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Anemelech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. They all were also fearing Yahweh and appointed from among all of themselves priests of the high places. And they were acting for them in the houses of the high places. They were fearing Yahweh and serving their own gods according to the customs of the nations from among whom they had been taken away into exile. To this day, they are acting according to the earlier customs. They are not fearing Yahweh. They are not acting according to their statutes or their judgments or the law or the commandment which Yahweh commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom God Yahweh cut a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor worship them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall worship, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the judgments and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. But Yahweh, your God, you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they were acting according to their earlier custom. So while these nations were fearing Yahweh, they also were serving their graven images, their children likewise, and their grandchildren. As their fathers acted, so they are acting this way to this day. Amen. Would you pray with me? 
Our Father, we pause to thank you again for your word, and we pray that tonight you would grant understanding, that you keep shaping us by your word. We, we understand that um, our memory works such that we may not remember particular lessons from each opportunity to teach and preach, but we're asking that your word, like powerful water or a glacier, goes over our souls and our character and our minds and shapes forcefully our thoughts about you and how we worship you. We ask this for your honor in Jesus. Amen. Well, it is a sad but fascinating uh, passage that we're looking at tonight. It is a summary uh, not only of the kind of false and apostate worship that filled Israel in the days of the kings of Israel, but it's a vivid description of what happened after the fall of Samaria and the last of the line of the kings of Israel in the north. And it is, it is, uh, it is rather, uh, who can say, this is, this is not boring. I mean, you've got lions here, you've got all kinds of weird God names. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is interesting stuff. And we should take heed. Ty, could you just turn me down just a little bit? Thank you. And so I want tonight to use, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on our, our, our old friend. I don't mean to call him old, uh, although he is a little older man, Dale Ralph Davis. And uh, over the years, he's been a help in his commentaries as we've gone through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. And from time to time, I, I use his material. So tonight, I'm using his outline all of the content I am responsible for, but his outline, this is, this is Dale Ralph Davis's outline. It was so helpful, I thought, I'm not going to come up with anything better than that. And uh, we'll look at that tonight. And then I'll probably read a few quotes. I thought he was helpful. So what we find here is, again, the king of Assyria, there's a series of them at this point, but they are, they are the rising superpower. And really, the region of Israel and Judah there, uh, pressed against the Mediterranean Sea, they are in a key position of, of uh, a power struggle between Egypt, of course, and Assyria is up in what is really modern-day Iraq, Iran, uh, modern-day Turkey is where they're spreading. And so uh, Israel and Judah are really caught. They're these puny little nations. I mean, you might think of them actually more like counties, really, at this point. They're, they're not impressive whatsoever in comparison to these massive kingdoms in Assyria and then down in Egypt. And, of course, the, each, the Assyrians have overrun Israel. They've overrun Samaria. And as I said, their policy, verse 24, was not only to cause the Israel to uh, sent away into Ezra, exile, verse 23, Israel went into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. So at the writing of this text, and we don't know exactly who wrote Second Kings, but it was many years later. So they were... These ten tribes went into exile, scattered all over, really, the world, eventually. And so they went into exile. Not only did they go into exile, but so the king of Assyria, as a policy of insurance that there would be no more rebellion, he he was sick and tired of this pesty little nation Israel constantly uh, revolting. And so finally he finished them off, and then he basically... Uh, scattered other people, foreign peoples, in the land of Israel. And one of the things you notice in verse 24 is that these people come from different people groups with different languages. 
And what do you have when you have people from different nations, different languages, uh, you hinder the ability to work together to rebel, right? God did that at Babel. <laughs> God confused the languages and reduced the ability of mankind to uh, speed up its, his rebellion against God. So you have different languages. The king of Assyria is doing this strategically to make sure that Israel doesn't rise up again. And the problem was that that was still God's land. King of Assyria might have taken it over, but just because God was judging his people didn't mean that he gave up the land. That was still the Lord's land. And the Lord is still passionate about his name and his honor. And so as a judgment, God began to send lions, verse 25. Now that, was, that sounds rather random, but it's, it's actually not. Turn back with me for a moment to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, God was giving to, way back in Moses' day, God was giving blessings and curses. And God had warned them, verse 14 of Leviticus 26, if you do not obey me and do not do these commandments, and if you reject my statutes and your soul loathes my judgments, uh, God gives a series of curses. Uh, one of them is that he will uh, cause them to go into exile. But look at verse 21 and 22. If you walk in hostility against me, and that's what Israel had done, and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will send out among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and cut down your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie desolate. The lions were eating the kids of Israel. Sorry, I know the kids are here tonight, and that's a little scary, but that's what was happening. And they were eating the moms and the dads, too. Um, and that does still happen in Africa, by the way. Uh, that is an actual problem in this present time with lions eating people. The lions are big. If I, if I meet a lion uh, out in the woods, I'm, I'm in trouble. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and, well, yeah, and even if I have some protection with me, I don't know what's going to stop a lion so this is a problem. Uh, the lions are among them. And notice that God is the one that's sending them. Verse 25, it's a form of judgment. God is ca causing the lions to multiply, and they are eating the people who are in the land. And so the people don't know what to do. Uh, they've got to, something's got to be done. So they, they send uh, ambassadors to the king of Assyria and they say, we've got a problem here. You know, you, you brought us to this land of Israel and uh, the God, notice that they, they don't believe it's the only God. So notice the God in small g, at least in my text, uh, maybe your translation has a different. But in other words, they're thinking that Yahweh or the Lord is just another one of the gods of the lands. So they say to the king of Assyria, uh, we got a problem. The God of this land, the, the land that you sent us into, uh, he's not too happy. And he's sending lions to eat us. And you, you got to do something. You got to, you got to, we don't know how to appease this God. We don't know how to make this God stop uh, sending lions eating us. And so the Assyrian uh, king says, all right, here's what we'll do is we'll, we'll find a priest from Israel who knows about the God of Israel. This Yahweh God, whoever he is. 
and uh, we'll figure out, we'll find a priest who knows what will appease him. We'll send the priest back to the land of Israel. He'll teach the people what this God Yahweh wants. So he'll stop uh, putting the people on the, on the menu of, of lions. And uh, now there should be flags all over the place there. Because we know that actually in Israel in the north, there probably weren't any real faithful priests. So verse 28, so one of the priests whom they'd taken away into exile from Samaria. He was a priest in Samaria, the place of the capital of Israel that was apostate and false worship. Uh, he came from exile. They sent him to Samaria and he settled at Bethel. Is Bethel ringing any bells? That's not Bethlehem. That's one of the two places where the golden calves were set up, at Bethel and at Dan. Oh, great. So you got this priest who's probably a, 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 a no-good liberal priest, if you want to call him that. And they figure, oh, well, he's going to know something about Yahweh. We'll send him back. They send him back to uh, Bethel, of all places. And he begins to instruct them how they should fear Yahweh. Now, it would help in your, trans, or in your interpretation if up until verse... 33, you put quotes around fearing Yahweh, quote, fearing Yahweh, quote, worshiping Yahweh. In other words, the verses are, are laden with sarcasm. Uh, the people were not seriously worshiping Yahweh. They weren't seriously fearing Yahweh. It was just what, and here's the first point, Dale Ralph Davis calls this coping religion. Coping, C-O-P-I-N-G. In other words, this is the kind of Christianity or the kind of religion, this view of God that it's useful, it's helpful, helps you get through life. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when I ask people why they, why they go to church or why they should go to church, if they say to me, well, because it's good for me, I got flags all over the place. They've got, they've got a case of coping religion. I mean, yeah, church is good for you, make no mistake, but that's not why you go, Right? Why do you go to church? To worship God, to know the living God. So it is good for you, but that's not the first reason why you go. It's not, you don't go to God because he's like a, a charm or a rabbit's foot. I don't see many rabbit's feet around anymore, but when I was a kid, they were all around. I mean, everybody had on their keychains a rabbit's foot. It's kind of gross when you think about it, isn't it? Kind of disgusting. People carrying around rabbit's feet, really weird. But, you know, people are like that with... With um, people are like that with funerals and and weddings and uh, people like to use some form of Christianity, especially around Christmas time. Oh, it's it's it helps you get through life, helps your helps your mental health if you have a religion, um, and that's what was going on in Israel in the north. There was no intention to worship the Lord God alone. There was no intention to be true to Yahweh or to give attention to his word. The only thing they wanted was to lessen some of their trouble in life. Dale Ralph Davis describes it this way. He said, uh, this kind of worship is pragmatic. In other words, says Davis, it's the kind of religion that says this, we must do something to get rid of these lions. So some people crave a protective faith that charms away troubles, that deals with threats to one's security. The big question of this kind of faith is not, is it true? But will this 
faith work to avoid discomfort? In other words, people are asking, hey, does it work? Does Christianity work? Will it help me avoid discomfort to ward off disaster? In the wake of catastrophes like 9-11 comes the question, where was God? Says Davis, there's nothing wrong with asking that question, but sometimes there's a, a false assumption, namely that God is always supposed to make life safe, that God is my existential pacifier, and if he does not guarantee my security, of what use is God? Religion, you know should get rid of the lions for you. I hope that's not how you think about God, about Christianity. God is good, and he does care for us, and I don't know how you get through this world without God and without the hope of the gospel. But be wary of coping religion. I've learned over the years, as I've had the privilege of leading many funeral services um, and, and many of them have been precious. And those that I have had the privilege of, of you know, leading the service for who went on to be with the Lord, what an honor. But in some cases, uh, there were individuals that you know, really had little interest in God or the church or Christ. And yet I was asked by the family to lead a service. And, and I was, always have felt mixed about that. I'm glad to help, and I view it as an opportunity to speak the truth and to show the love of Christ in that situation. And so I thank God for those opportunities, and I mean that sincerely. But why I bring this up is it is, it is amazing to me how I can serve at a funeral and lead largely a group of people who never sit foot in church, have nothing to do with Christ. I can... I try to be tactful and I try to speak words of truth and I do speak the gospel and declare that there's only hope in Jesus Christ and I do talk about sin and the reason for death is sin and I mean I, I put it out there I, it's not my job at a funeral to to um, you know to, to really get in people's faces about hell and so forth obviously I need to have some tact there's a time for everything but I tell the truth that salvation is exclusive. I don't pull any punches. And, and early on, I noticed that people who didn't want anything to do with God, anything to do with Christ, would come up to me afterwards, minister, pastor. That was, that was a beautiful service. That was, that was, thank you so much. That was, that was wonderful. And, and early on, as a young pastor, I thought, oh, that, 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 you're, you're welcome. I thought, all right, I'm getting some traction here. But then what I learned over the years is, you know what? They view me and the whole service as some kind of spiritual aesthetic. Uh, or, uh, and, uh, what do I, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anesthesia. Uh, they, they, that's all they think of me as. All I do is dull the pain. And as long as I did it in a way that was orderly and thoughtful, and, and they appreciate that. It doesn't matter if I said that there's only one God and there's only one Christ and there's only one way to heaven and so forth. I, I, it was useful. They even views orthodox conservative Christianity as useful because it's coping religion. Be wary, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, of coping religion. We do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he works for us. 
We serve Christ and we worship God for one reason and one reason only. The truth. He is God and Christ is worthy of worship. So in the first section here, we learn about coping religion. They, 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 they grabbed a hold of it. I mean, they, they thought this was great. They welcomed the guy and, and he taught them. And all they did is they dabbled in a few things that they thought would help Yahweh be a little less angry. And uh, it, it's really Christian worship. Uh, it's really pagan worship. It's not Christian worship. It wasn't true worship. Secondly, in verses 29 through 33, we go from coping religion to creative religion. This is, again, Dale Ralph Davis's outline. Even though they were taught uh, a little bit how to fear Yahweh, which I have no idea what that involved. Certainly, it didn't, it, this priest wasn't teaching them the truth. It was just external religion. Because, we learn in verse 29, each nation was still making gods of its own, and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Now just pause right there. There's a lot in that phrase. So here you have these foreign pagan people who have been brought into the land of Israel, literally the land, the towns, and they are worshiping these other false gods with all these strange names. But... Uh, and they're happy to worship their God, and if they can give a little honor to this Yahweh God so lions stop eating their kids, uh, they'll do that too. That's fine. Uh, but notice that what do they use as their places of worship? They use the high places that Israel had made in the previous generations, supposedly in the worship of Yahweh. In other words, the Samaritans, they weren't Samaritans yet, sorry. Uh, The Israelites, those who lived in Samaria, the the original, the ten tribes, they had engaged for decades and generations in creative worship. It started all the way back with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the two golden calves. And he says, here, O Israel, is Yahweh, your gods, who led you out of Egypt. That's creative And it was very practical, as we've learned. He set one up in Bethel in the south, Dan way up in the north, so that, you know, it didn't take you so long to get to Jerusalem. Uh, Very user-friendly. And it wasn't hard, because you didn't have to use, uh, really, your mind too much. You didn't have to think about a God you couldn't see. You could see your golden calf, Yahweh, right there in front of you. It was very uh, lights, camera action, and and smoke, and, and music, and it was very entertaining. And really, I mean, I mean, that religion, that worship down in Jerusalem, that Orthodox religion, that was very boring. But up there in the north, they were in the high places they sped up, especially as they were the localities. Oh, you don't need to go all the way down to worship God at the temple. You can worship him anywhere that you want. That's what they were thinking in that day. And of course, today, we don't need to go to a certain place to worship the Lord. It is true now that we can worship the Lord, although we are commanded in the New Testament not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We shouldn't fake that either. Uh, We should not fake uh, or forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to meet. But they were, what I wanted you to notice in verse 29 is that the, the, supposed creativity in worship in other words going outside the bounds of what God had commanded in his word 
not only brought judgment upon the previous generations in Israel, but actually provided the places of worship for other false gods. And that's happening all around New England. How many rainbow flags have you seen flying in front of churches? Once upon a time, there might have been some true Christians in that place that gave money to build that cute old New England congregational or Baptist church. But somewhere along the way, people got tired of the Bible. And they thought, started to think, oh, you know, that's a little too strict that we confine ourselves to worshiping God the way that he has dictated in his word and they started to get creative well you start to get creative you start to go outside the bounds of God's word and it leads to anywhere so creative religion and you notice in verses 29 through 33 the repetition of the word made each nation make their own gods the men of Babylon made this Succoth Banath the men of Kuth made Nergal the men of Hamath made Ashima the Avites made 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 and what did God commanded Israel and really commands all mankind? You shall not make any graven images. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not. You don't make God. This is the continual propensity of, of fallen man's false worship. Dale Ralph Davis, again reading, he, he summarizes it this way. Pagan religion creates what it likes. Biblical faith receives what is revealed. Let me say that again. Pagan religion creates what it likes. That's scary because that means that a whole lot of churches that bear the name Christian may actually be more pagan than Christian or going in that direction at least. So pagan religion creates what it likes. Biblical faith receives what is revealed? Pagans worship based on what they prefer. Biblicists must worship based on what God declares. The biblical worshiper must submit. The pagan worshiper may concoct. And when pagan worship mixes with true worship, we have... And actually, I don't understand the next word, so I have to look that up later. <laughs> we have confusion, is, that, is what he's saying there. So you, you can't mix it. You can't concoct your own worship. You can't make it up. And yet that's happening today all the time. Um, we, you certainly can have creativity in terms of expression in, in biblical worship to God, in our singing, in our music, in our prayers, in our preaching. Of course, within the, within the bounds of what God has given to us, how we are to worship him, we actually honor our creator by being creative, not just being rote. But God gives the lane that we are to stay in. God gives the ways that we are to worship him. And we need to be careful to stay there and be careful not to become discontent. Thirdly and finally tonight, in verses 34 to 40, coping religion, creative religion. Thirdly and finally, covenant religion. And this is true religion. So these faults, these people from other nations and whoever remained in the land of Israel, they were trying to mix worship of Yahweh and worshiping of these other 
gods who were an abomination, even sacrificing their children. Down in verse 34, we learn the true perspective. So again, the you should put quotes around fearing the Lord. It wasn't true worship in these verses, in the opening chapter, opening verses of, of our section of this section tonight. Rather, verse thirty-four has the true perspective. To this day, they are acting according to the earlier customs. They are not fearing Yahweh. That's the truth, and are not acting according to their statutes or judgments of the law, the commandment which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob. So God had given in the Ten Commandments very clear instructions as to how he was to be worshipped. And foremost among them, verse 35, you shall not fear other gods, nor worship them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them. Notice how adamant God is. Notice how clear God is. Notice how strong God is about that. And that's very um, out of step with the spirit of the age that we're in right now. Because that sounds very narrow-minded, sounds very intolerant, sounds very, um, some would say, legalistic. <laughs> but God, because of who he is, does not share his glory. And he does not bow himself to the will of men and women that he has made. He maintains his worship in a right way by giving to his people how he is to be worshipped. And we are to do so exclusively. Exclusively. And this is covenant religion. We have, God has entered into a covenant with us. We are covenant people, right? We are new covenant people. Every time we remember the Lord's Supper and have communion, we remember the new covenant that Christ established in his blood. God has bound himself to us, and we are bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not free. We are servants. We are slaves. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So we're not free to do as we will in the worship of God, make our own way. We are to be true, exclusively so. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, covenant worship or true religion is this way. It carries a fundamental intolerance at its center. He's talking about true worship. It carries a fundamental intolerance at, his, at its center. Yahweh or other gods, that's your choice. One or the other. Worship the one true living God or have other gods, but you cannot have them both. If Jesus is Lord, says Davis, all competitors must be excluded. As I've noted before, pagan religions were not like this. No pagan deity worth his or her salt ever got its divine uh, bowels in an uproar if one of its devotees worshipped or prayed or sacrificed to another god or goddess. The other gods are fine if you, if you want to worship, you want to put it together, you want to be ecumenical in that way and kind of mix it up a little bit. The other false gods have no problem, but only biblical covenant religion, says Davis, carries this virulent animosity toward all would-be competitors. One suspects this unique religion is also the true religion. It's a, it's a decision. 
and the decision is before each one of us, young and old. And maybe we chose to follow Jesus once upon a time, but as we go along, sticking to that becomes harder and harder. But Jesus will countenance no competitors. Oh, he's gentle. Oh, he's mild. He's meek. But he demands exclusive loyalty. Interesting, in closing, that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, the second letter, and he was, he was very concerned because they were departing from love for Christ and they were, going at, they were talking about creativity and worship. They were engaging in all kinds of false worship. And Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, I am jealous with you, for, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Loyalty. Our loyalty to Christ is to be like the loyalty of a wife to her husband. Singular, unique, devoted. That is the kind of worship that God wants. It's uh, hard in this present generation. I'll, I'll, for all of us, and I'll tell those of you who are younger, that you're going to, you are and you will, you will face difficulty. You will be misunderstood. You will be called intolerant. You will be called narrow. You will be called maybe fundamental. You will be called rigid, legalistic, all manner of false things. Just because you humbly, sincerely want to worship God according to his scriptures and you want to humbly be faithful to the Lord Jesus and allow for no other allegiances. You follow him, it's going to be hard. But for those who follow the Lord, there is great blessing and great promise. And I, want to, I do want to close with just one more passage. At, in Leviticus 26, we had learned that God promised that if they, Israel departed from the Lord, that he would send beasts among them, among other things. But at the end of Leviticus chapter 26, God said that even though Israel would eventually abandon him, he would not abandon them, his covenant. God said in Leviticus 26, 44 and following, In spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor so loathe them as to bring an end to them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. But I will remember for them the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. If you follow the Lord and you hold fast to his word humbly, you will face much opposition. And as I said, you will, you will be persecuted. So... What's the benefit? Apart from it just being right because God is truly God. The benefit is that this God, the one true living God, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, covenants himself to be your God, to be God to you, which means that he takes upon himself himself 
the care for you. He takes upon himself and his own name. He binds himself to fulfill to you all the promises that he has made to his people in Jesus Christ. You cannot go wrong. Let's pray. So God, may we be loyal to you. And in a generation of compromise and capitulation, all strengthen our hearts. Help us to be soft in, in, in their spirit, that in other words, we would be gentle, not harsh with others, but help us to be firm, unwavering in conviction. And if we are misunderstood and maligned, give us the fortitude to carry on looking to Jesus, who counted it a small thing to be ridiculed by men, even crucified, as he went, to, as he served you. Help us to follow the Lord Jesus in his name. Amen.